0: Um, Let's go into the sermon. So we are doing um, a sermon series in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a set of very detailed rules and laws governing the daily life of the people of Israel. And in today we're going to look at a remarkable text. I think One of the most remarkable texts in all of the Bible. It is a breathtaking, can I even say, it is a radical vision of how society should be structured. And it really shows us that, you know, the Bible is not just interested in spiritual things, but it's interested in our economic lives. It's interested in how wealth is distributed, in the problem of poverty, and in social. Structures in all of these aspects. And my goal today, and I hope you will come away from this sermon, first of all, just amazed at the social vision of the Old Testament and appreciate just how beautiful it is. It is beautiful. And then, secondly, I hope that you will come away deeply challenged about how you're going to live your life today how you're going to respond with your life to this text. So with that in mind, we're going to read Deuteronomy chapter 15. Um, Actually, we're just going to read the first part of it, verses 1 through 11. The whole text is actually goes to verse 23. But we're going to skip the second half and reserve it for another time, which I'll explain to you later. So let's uh, look in your bulletins, also in your... um, Also uh, on screen, I'll read to you starting in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, the subtitle will say the sabbatical year, but this is the text. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release, is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he will cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely. And your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because because for this this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This is the word of God. I have two points. The first is that we are going to look at the social vision of the Old Testament. And then the second point is we're going to look at the early church and the New Testament. So we're going to look at the Old Testament and then we're going to look at the New Testament. So first, the social vision of the Old Testament. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. The text says, "...at the end of every seven years you shall grant a release." And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. So the law here is pretty straightforward. Every seven years following the pattern of the weekly Sabbath, every seven years, all debts are to be forgiven. All debts are to be wiped clean. That's the law. Now, in order to make sense of this law, you have to understand how debt worked in the ancient world. And the first thing you have to understand that is that the ancient world did not have banks. This is hard for us to imagine, which means that they did not have you know, commercial or business loans. They didn't have mortgages. Um, you didn't borrow money to go to college. You know, in the modern world, for the most part, you borrow in order to invest in the future, right? You, you borrow money to start a business or to get educated or to finance you know, a big purchase like a house or a car. And it may take you a long time to pay, pay it back, but it's manageable or should be manageable because you're getting a return on your investment. But in the ancient world... First of all, all loans were personal. It was from one person to another person. Again, no banks. And then secondly, you would borrow money not to invest in the future, but in response to a personal disaster. You have to remember that ancient Israel was an agrarian society. And what that meant is that everyone was a farmer. Everyone was a farmer and Every year, your livelihood depended on the harvest. Now, if you were prudent, you would make provisions for the bad years, right? Sometimes there's good years, sometimes there's bad years. But, if you had no margin, if you had several bad years in a row, if you suffered injury or sickness or there was death in the family, And then on top of that, you suffered a devastating crop failure. And now your family is facing starvation. In that place of desperation, you would go to your neighbor and you would ask for a loan. And your neighbor wouldn't necessarily give you money. This wasn't a cash economy. But for the most part, what they would do is they would give you some of their crops. They would give you some of their seeds so that from their own harvest, So that you can survive the next year. And you can plant your fields. And then if you have a successful harvest, you can pay back your neighbor. And the only reason you couldn't is because your problems would continue. And so you would continue to be in debt. And therefore, you have to understand, in that society, the only people who had debts were the poor. And the only reason to lend somebody money is because they were in dire financial need. So that in that culture, debt was connected to poverty and to be indebted was to be poor. Does that make sense? And so this law in Deuteronomy 15, the law of the sabbatical year, was designed to address poverty. It was designed to relieve the poor of long-term, burdensome debt, which was one of the key factors in the ancient world of permanent generational poverty. And so this law was a way to press the reset button and relieve the poor of this crushing burden so that they could have a fresh start in life. That's the law. Now, by itself, that's Pretty remarkable. But I want you to know that this law was part of a whole cluster of Old Testament laws that were designed to help the poor. Let me give you some examples. Exodus 22 says that all loans, and remember loans were only given to the poor, all loans were to be given interest free. You could not profit from your loans. Deuteronomy 14, we looked at this last week, a significant portion of the tides was dedicated to the poor. Leviticus 19 talks about the gleaning laws. What are the gleaning laws? It was basically a limit on your profits. You had to reserve sort of the outer edges, the the outer margin of your field, and you had to leave it unharvested so that the poor could go and glean for themselves and provide for themselves. And these are not just sort of individual one-off laws, but all of these laws worked together to create this broader system of equity in Israel. And in a world in which all wealth was tied to the land, this is hard for us to understand, but in the ancient world, your wealth was in the land. Land was wealth. And in that culture, let me pause for this plane. So in a, in a world in which all wealth was tied to land, do you remember how the story goes? When the people of Israel settled in the land of Canaan, all of the land from the beginning was evenly distributed to all of the families, so that the each family got an equal portion, an equal share that's numbers twenty six. Do you understand, okay so at the very beginning, all families had equal wealth, because they had equal land. And then in Leviticus 25, you have maybe the most astonishing law of all, the year of Jubilee. What is the year of Jubilee? Every 50 years, it's because it's 7 sabbatical years, that's 49, and in the next year, on the 50th year, all land in Israel was restored back to the original families, to the original allotment and distribution. Do you understand how radical that is? Think about it. What that means is that land could never be permanently transferred or lost. And in a world in which all wealth was tied to the land, the implications is that there could never be wide disparities of wealth in Israel. You could never have you know, rich families sort of gobbling up all of the land. You could never have the super rich and the super poor. You could never have long-term generational poverty because every 50 years you hit the reset button. And everyone was restored back to their family estate. And so when you take all of these laws together it would have virtually eliminated any permanent underclass in Israel. So that Israel was meant, this was God's design. Israel was meant to be a relatively egalitarian society of small-scale farmers. That was God's intention. And this is why you have the most amazing verse in our passage, the audacity of it, takes my breath away. In verse 4, the text says, there will be no poor among you. There will be no poor if you obey. In fact, verse 5 says, um, if you strictly obey, which is a very decent translation. The Hebrew there is actually a doubling of the word. It literally says, if you obey, obey if you truly obey, if you fully obey, you will eliminate long-term poverty among you. Before we move on to the next point, I want to point out, um, bring up two more things in the text. I want to show you, first of all, the extent, and then secondly, the heart attitude of what God is calling for. So first, the extent. Look at verse 8. The text says, you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. This is very comprehensive language. The Bible is not talking about a token handout. The Bible is not talking about giving someone a few dollars so they could buy a meal. But what God is calling for is for credit and help to be extended until that poor person is completely out of their hardship. And the generosity is not to be cut off until that person has reached a sustainable level of sufficiency. That's what the text says. Sufficient for his needs, whatever it may be. This is comprehensive, far-reaching generosity. The second, secondly, look at the hard attitude. Look at verse 9. The text says, Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release, is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. So, the seventh year is a set date. It's not seven years after you get your loan. It's every seven years, no matter what. And so, of course, it would be natural... For people to think, hmm, (laughs) this is now the sixth year. The next year is the sabbatical year. Which means, if I give my neighbor a loan, I may not get it back, right? In effect, the loan would be a gift. And so, in, in effect, the loan would be a total loss. And God says in response to that, do not have a grudging heart. And the Hebrew word there literally means, do not be grieved. Don't be sorry. Don't be sad for yourself. But do it with joy. Do it cheerfully. And so God here is not asking for mere compliance. He's not asking for obedience, but with a grudging attitude. He is asking for generosity that comes from your heart a heart of compassion, a heart of sympathy that loves the poor. Verse 7 says, Do not harden your heart. Do not be unfeeling and callous to the affliction and to the sufferings of others, but open, open your heart to them. That's what God is saying. Finally, notice, notice that this is not an optional activity. This is an obligatory command. Look with me to the end of verse 9. The rest of verse 9 says, If you give your brother nothing, he will cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. You see, the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible, his heart is for the poor. His heart is near to the lowly and to the afflicted. And you see the character of God in Deuteronomy 10:18. We looked at this several weeks ago. Listen to this. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. If this is not your heart too, You cannot claim to know Him or to love Him. And on the last day He will say to you, Depart from me, I do not know you. Proverbs 21.13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Some of you are getting very excited about this and you're captivated by this vision and you're saying, okay, so what are the implications for society today? Like, how does this affect public policy? How does this change the way we should vote? And man, (laughs) that's a big question. And my answer is, I'm not saying there are no implications. There are profound implications. But it's more limited than you think. Because these laws, I want you to understand, applied to the theocratic nation of Israel. And they were not necessarily meant for all nations at all times. And you see that in our text in verse 3. Because verse 3 says that this law does not apply to foreigners. This is for the community of Israel. Now there were special provisions for foreigners. The Bible also calls them sojourners to show them mercy and we'll look at that later in the coming weeks. But this is a vision of economic sharing for Israel. And lastly, let me point out um, one more thing related to this and you probably already noticed it which is that there seems to be an apparent contradiction in the text. In verse 4 it says, there will be no poor among you And then in verse 11, it says, there will never cease to be the poor. Right? So verse 4 says, there will be no poor. And in verse 11 says, there will always be poor. So first of all, this is not a contradiction. Let's give the Bible a little bit more credit. What this is saying is, the Bible is asking us to think deeply. The Bible is saying two different things that are closely connected to each other. In verse 4, it's saying if the people obey, there will be no permanent class of poor. But in verse 11, it's saying there will always be people becoming poor because of a variety of reasons. And, you know, the Bible has a very sophisticated view of poverty. You see that especially in the book of Proverbs. We don't have time to look at all the various verses. But especially in Proverbs, you see that the Bible identifies three main causes of poverty. The first cause is calamities and natural disasters. Right, These are sort of factors outside of us that we have no control over. Secondly... You have oppression and injustice. This is the way you know, societies are structured, where the strong eat the weak. And then thirdly, you have personal laziness and self-destructive behavior. These are sort of individual personal factors that lead to poverty. And you know, sometimes, and maybe we could say oftentimes, it is a combination of all these factors. But it's really interesting because the Bible never says everyone should have equal amounts of wealth because effort and hard work should be taken into account. And the Bible never says, you know, we should all just live on a commune (laughs) where there's no private property like they did in the 60s and 70s, right? By the way, all of them failed without um, an exception because the Bible says that every family should have their own plot of land, every family should develop and invest in the land and draw a living from it. And so it's very interesting, you know. On the one hand, the Bible does not give in to cynicism. The Bible never says, oh, there will always be poor people. You know, it's overwhelming. What can you do? There's no point in trying because it's hopeless. You know, there are people who say that, but it's really just an excuse not to get involved. And on the other hand, The Bible does not advocate a utopian vision that somehow we will create this classless society and we will completely eliminate poverty of any kind. The Bible is more realistic than that. Instead, the Bible articulates a strong hope and practical engagement not necessarily through state power, although there are legitimate state interests involved. And how that's all worked out is, I think, a matter of practical wisdom. And so all of that to say, you know, you're free to be a Democrat, you're free to be a Republican. both political parties have legitimate strategies to address poverty, or maybe not... (laughs) I'm not here to tell you who is right. Maybe it's a combination. Maybe they're both wrong. You know, the problem of poverty is very complex. And it resists easy solutions. But I want you to know, and and I'm telling this to you as as your pastor, the Bible does not primarily articulate a political vision. Although reading the Bible absolutely will affect your politics, but primarily the Bible is interested and it's focused on how these principles are practiced inside the family of faith. That's the Bible's focus. And that leads me to my second point, which is the early church and the New Testament. So I want to take you to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of the early church. And all throughout the book of Acts, you have these little descriptions, these little um, pictures of how, of the social life and and the community life of the early church. I want to read you one from Acts chapter 4, verses 32, 34. Very interesting. Listen. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So what we learn here is that the early church was a radical community of economic sharing because they thought of themselves as a family. And they took care of each other so that no one was left alone. And what the writer of Acts is telling us, what Luke is telling us, is that this sharing of resources inside the church was so extensive, it was so generous, let, let me pause for this plane. All right. So Lucas Lucas saying that the sharing of resources was so extensive and so generous he actually says in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. I want you to know, that's not accidental phrasing. That's very deliberate. The, um, the Greek there, the, the wording almost exactly matches the wording in Deuteronomy 15, verse 4 in our text. So what is Luke doing? What is Luke doing? Don't you see? The social laws of the Old Testament that protected the poor. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, if you read the historical narratives, the historical books, you will very quickly realize all of these social laws, they were never followed. They were only practiced by individual pious Israelites like Boaz in the book of uh, Ruth. Boaz kept the gleaning laws, which is how Ruth was able to provide for Naomi. But as a nation, these laws were neglected and ignored. And so the wrath of God was stored up. And then you have 2 Chronicles 36.21, which says explicitly that one of the main reasons why Israel went into exile why they lost the promised land is because the the sabbatical laws were never kept. They were never followed. And so what Luke is saying is that these laws were finally, finally fulfilled in the early church. All the Old Testament social laws that mandated care for the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, All of these laws were kept by the early church. And you see that all throughout the story in Acts. You see it throughout the epistles. You see it especially in James, 1 John, 2 Chronicles. And not only inside the the testimony of the New Testament, you see this in pagan writers. You have to understand the early Christian church was known for this. They were known for this. We have pagan writers. Whose writings we still have. Where, you know, And they're mocking the Christians. They're derisive. But they were astonished. They had never seen generosity like this. You know pagans. They shared inside their family. They shared inside their tribe. But the early Christians shared. Across ethnic lines. They shared even. With people who were outside of the church, with non Christians. The the pagans had never seen this. And so, this is what the early church was known for. And so, here's the question we should be asking why? What changed? What changed? Why was it so clear in the Old Testament but the people couldn't obey? And then why in the New Testament suddenly there's this burst of energy and this enthusiasm and will and desire to obey these laws, these principles? How do you account for that? How do you explain that? And the answer, the answer is Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, you have Jesus' inaugural sermon. This is his sort of opening message, opening speech to launch his public ministry. And so he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. He picks up the scroll from Isaiah. This is what he reads. Listen to this, very significant. He says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I want you to understand the year of the Lord's favor. That's Deuteronomy 15. That's the sabbatical year. And by the way, some of you might have noticed it says, Liberty to the captives. That's the second half of Deuteronomy 15. It's about um, slavery, how it was practiced in ancient Israel and in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of questions about that. And so that, that topic of slavery deserves a very thoughtful and serious sermon, which I'm going to give in two weeks. And so that's why we're reserving it for that. But going back to that phrase, right? Jesus says, the year of the Lord's favor. I want you to know that was never kept by the people of Israel. Never. 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 And then Jesus sits down and then he says maybe the most astonishing thing that has been ever said in the Bible. It gives me chills every time I think about it. He says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you understand What the New Testament is saying is that the life and the ministry of Jesus is the true and ultimate fulfillment of the sabbatical year. All of the laws that mandated mercy for the poor, all of the laws that showed God's heart for the lowly and the afflicted was ultimately realized and accomplished By his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel of 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich. Yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God was infinitely rich. He owned all the galaxies of the universe. He is the Prince of Heaven. But on a Roman cross, he became poor. He was stripped naked. All his possessions were taken. He died penniless, a shameful death, buried in a borrowed tomb. And then more than that, far more than that, he lost his spiritual wealth. He lost his glory. He lost his power. He lost his relationship with his Father. He was utterly impoverished, spiritually, materially, in all things. He was emptied. Philippians chapter 2. Why? So said that we by His poverty, might become rich. So that we could be filled with His glory. So that we could receive the reconciliation through His relationship with the Father. So that we could be enriched by His spiritual wealth. Ephesians 1.3 In Christ we have every spiritual blessing. Colossians 2.3 all the treasures of wisdom and and glory and knowledge are ours in Jesus Christ. We are infinitely rich. We are sons of the living God. We are the apple of His eye. We are His most treasured possession. His eye is always upon us. And when that goes down into your heart, that, that is the key to generosity. Because if you know that you're rich, if you know that you possess this inexhaustible, inextinguishable source of wealth that you can never lose, you see, it's very hard to be generous if you're insecure. It's very hard to give when you're empty. You could only give out of your wealth. You could only give if you feel safe. But in Christ, you are infinitely safe. You are infinitely wealthy. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance awaiting us imperishable. That's the answer. I believe that this is the only hope for this world. I believe it with all of my strength. I have given my life to this message. This is the only way to change hearts. Otherwise, you're just using coercion and guilt. That only works for a little bit, but it doesn't last. The only way is that you have to be transformed by the love of Christ. And then your hands will be open. Let's pray. Almighty God. This is a stunning, breathtaking vision for sharing inside the church and beyond the walls of the church. Help us to live like this. Help us to live like a family so that we care for each other, so that no one is left alone, no one struggles by themselves. Help us to understand that the gospel is not just an abstract teaching. It's not just a slogan that we say. But it's a power. It's active in our lives. May our lives be living sermons of the gospel so that people who don't know you, non-Christians, will look at us and say, surely the love of God is alive in you because I see your love for one another. Lord, make the gospel a reality and not just, not just words, but a living truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.